Morning, everybody. I'm Kevin Hoy, and I lead the real estate practice in Mason, Hayes, and Curran. I'm your chair for today's event, so it's my job to give you an outline of what we're going to achieve this morning and also to get us finished on time at 9.15. First, I'd like to share some pieces of good news. As you know, we've done well during the downturn, and part of that is recruitment and the promotion of talent. So I'm delighted to let you know that two partners have been made up in real estate, Tom Davey and Rachel Carney, so congratulations to them. And also we've recruited externally, so Michael Doran has joined us. And Michael, you'll be familiar with him from his institutional client base and his many years of work in the real estate sector. So I'm looking forward to many more years working with Michael and continuing to drive on the practice. We now have 20 lawyers doing real estate work, so one of the biggest teams in the city. Second piece of good news is last week we learned that we were chosen as Irish Law Firm of the Year by Chambers, the International Law Directory. And that's a great credit to not only the staff in Mason, Hayes and Curran, but it's also largely down to you, our clients and friends, because it's through the business you've given us, your support and encouragement, and all the suggestions you've made about how we can improve our service offering that make us that firm now, and we continue to strive to be better at what we do. So our aim is to give you practical legal advice in a cost-effective and timely manner. And this seminar, hopefully, will give you an example of that. We've chosen the topics based on feedback from you, and we continue to encourage you to give us that feedback. So the focus today is on the breakdown of the landlord and tenant relationship. We're looking at three different aspects of it. Our first speaker will be Nicola Byrne, and she'll talk to us about break clauses and their exercise. Now, break clauses do not have a huge amount of Irish case law, so we have to look next door to the UK for cases as to examples of how break clauses are interpreted and how they might be operated in Ireland. Secondly, we have Nicola. Secondly, we have Emer Collins, who will talk to us about how a landlord can retake possession of commercial premises without having to go to court. Now, it might seem peculiar for lawyers to be telling you ways not to spend money on lawyers, but the retaking of possession by peaceable re-entry is an effective way for a landlord to enforce against a tenant. But it can be a bit of a roller coaster, so Emer will take us through the detail of that. And then Eamon Murray Barrister will talk to us from a tenant perspective as to what happens if it's the landlord who's been in breach. That may not seem to be a very common situation, but we're finding in practice that it's becoming more and more of an issue. Landlords have got into trouble in the downturn, obviously, and in some cases, tenants are taking steps to enforce against landlords. So overall, we'll be done by 9.15. After the speakers have given their presentations, we'll have a question and answer session. And then at the end of the event, if there are questions you'd rather not put before 200 people, we'll be at the back of the hall and we'd be happy to chat to you afterwards. So first, we have Nicola talking about time to split, the exercise of break clauses. Thank you, Kevin. Good morning, everyone. So when it comes to exercising commercial lease break options, there's a fundamental disconnect between the interests of the landlord and the tenant under the lease. For example, the tenant, on the one hand, wants to leave in order to avoid paying excessive rents and to extricate itself from onerous long-term lease obligations. And the landlord, on the other hand, wants the tenant to stay uh, it, and is anxious to preserve the lease terms in order to protect the economic value of its investment. So it's this disconnect that can frequently lead to disputes between the parties. 
so at that stage, it's critical that both landlords and tenants um, take legal advice and arm themselves with knowledge of the law so that they can understand and identify the nature and extent of what needs to be done in order to validly exercise the break option, how to, st to strategically engage with the other party so that what has been agreed what has been commercially agreed to be done and what is reflected in the lease documentation is in fact done. The main reason for this is that the consequences or the commercial consequences of failing to do what is required to be done can be fatal for both landlords and tenants. For tenants in respect of seeking to validly exercise the break option so as to terminate the lease and for landlords in respect of trying to capitalise on a tenant's non-compliance those to ensure that the lease will remain extant for the duration of the term. So there are many ways in which to terminate commercial agreements and all other forms of legal arrangements, and history illustrates this well. For example, Henry VIII adopted the approach of simply ignoring the law and taking matters into his own hands. So for the record, Mason Hayes and Curran is certainly not advocating that landlords and tenants attempt at executing one another in order to bring an end to their landlord and tenant relationships. But what they need to do, as I said, is arm themselves with the knowledge of the law um, so that they can bring an end to the commercial relationship as agreed and as set out in the legal documentation. So what is the law? First thing you need to know is that there's no statutory framework whatsoever regulating the exercise of break options in this jurisdiction, and quite surprisingly there's no Irish reported case law on the topic. In addition, there's no standard form lease break option provisions. The provisions will vary from lease to lease, and there's no industry accepted or endorsed code of practice, unlike our counterparts in the UK. So the area is governed solely and entirely by the law of contract. What the parties commercially agreed, what's reflected in the lease documentation, um, and, and what, what essentially needs to be done. And it just goes to show you the importance at the outset on the creation of the lease of the commercial agreement reached between the parties and the parties' respective lawyers' negotiations of the relevant provisions affecting that agreement. So, unfortunately, given the, the fact that we have no Irish legislative framework or Irish reported case law on the topic, we look to UK case law, which is of persuasive authority in this jurisdiction. So first, before we look at the case law, we'll just take a look at a typical example of a break option clause. The tenant shall be entitled to terminate the lease on the break date strictly subject to compliance with the following terms and conditions. The service of notice, discharge of rent and outgoings under the lease up to the break date, and compliance with the covenants and conditions of the tenant up to the break date. The first thing we need to have a look at is the highlighted wording there, strictly subject to the following terms and conditions. And although lease break options vary from lease to lease, from experience, 99.9% .9 of break option provisions will contain those exact words. And what they mean is that the following terms and conditions are conditions precedent to the exercise of the break option, uh, which means that the tenant must completely fulfil each of those conditions in order to be able to validly exercise the break option. And at the outset, just to be aware that the general approach of the UK courts is that the courts require the strictest of compliance by tenants, so that the slightest element of non-compliance may be fatal to a tenant seeking to validly exercise a break option. And the reason the courts take this approach stems from the exceptional nature of break option provisions and their fundamental impact on the landlord and tenant relationship. Some are of the view that the Irish courts will be far more lenient, but it remains to be seen at this stage. So I've set out there the three 
in my experience, of the most common preconditions for the exercise of break clauses. Uh, and we'll have a look, quick look at the main UK judicial decisions in the area, which can offer some practical guidance uh, as to how a tenant can comply with those conditions. I think you may find some of the nuances of the, the various different judicial interpretations quite interesting. And you may be surprised at the scope um, for misinterpretation and consequent non-compliance by tenants. So the first of those conditions, the service of notice. And I'm sure you're all wondering, the service of notice, what could possibly go wrong? And the answer is that there can be numerous difficulties in relation to the break notice. And if I'm blatantly honest, uh, that they're an absolute nightmare for both landlords and tenants, and, and of course their lawyers. Uh, identity. It may seem an obvious point, but the correct identity of the landlord and the tenant is extremely important. Uh, for example, has either party disposed of their interest under the lease at, at any stage? Has either party undergone any corporate restructuring which could change the landlord and tenant entity from those under the original lease? And in recent times, we're seeing a lot of banks enforcing security, uh, the appointment of receivers, appointment of liquidators. So these are all things that need to be taken in, into consideration. In one particular case in the UK regarding identity, there were two tenants named as tenants under the lease. Only one of those tenants served the break notice on the landlord, and the court held that the, that the break notice was invalid, and this prevented the tenant from validly exercising the break option. And this was as a result of the fact that the failure to refer to the two tenants generated doubt as to the, those tenants' intentions um, in relation to terminating the lease. <clears throat> Authority then, generally the break option provisions will provide that the tenant must serve the notice on the landlord. The safest approach in those cases is for the actual tenant entity to serve the notice, but in many cases landlords will receive break notices, not from the tenant but from a third party purporting to act on behalf of the tenant, for example a lawyer or an agent. And in those cases, a landlord must consider, does that party have the necessary authority and is the basis of that authority explicitly stated on the face of the notice so that the landlord can be sure as to whether or not he can rely on the notice. Timing, again, most break option provisions will contain uh, an obligation that the notice must be served within a specified time frame. For example, no greater than three months, six months or 12 months prior to the break date. And a lot of t on a lot of occasions, the break notice or the break clause will state that time is to be of the essence in that respect. And if that is the case, it's of fundamental importance that the notice is served within the necessary time frame. Otherwise, uh, the, the tenant will have invalidly exercised the break option. Service then, quite often, separately from the break option provisions, uh, the lease will contain certain provisions in relation to how notices are to be served, prescribed modes of services, particular addresses to which notices must be served, and these prescribed, uh, these prescribed notice provisions should be adhered to. Uh, one particular case there involved a, a lease where there was a provision in the lease quite separate to the, to the break option which provided that no notice served under the lease would be effective unless a copy of the notice was also served on another party on the same date. And this was not done, and the court held that the break notice was invalid as a result. So moving on to the second of our most common preconditions, which is the discharge of rented outgoings under the lease. So it's not uncommon for break option provisions to contain an obligation on a tenant to make some form of 
break payment or break penalty to the landlord. Uh, for example, a lease break option could provide that a tenant is to pay a break penalty equivalent to the sum of six months' rent under the lease to the landlord at the same time as the service of the break notice. And these were the facts of the case in a recent Irish High Court case involving Dennis O'Brien, where Mr O'Brien instituted proceedings against its tenant BT, which was a tenant of his office premises nearby on Grand Canal Street. And Mr O'Brien alleged that the particular break payment was not made in accordance with the break option provisions. Unfortunately, for those of us looking for some you know, insight into Irish judicial interpretation of break option provisions, this case was struck out, presumably settled between the parties and presumably as some kind of compensation payable by the tenant as a result of its, its non-compliance. So moving on to rent and outgoings then, um, this will not, inc not include just the main rent, but also insurance premium, service charge, commercial rates, all of the utilities and outgoings payable by the tenant under the lease. Normally, we would, we would advise both landlords and tenants to collate some kind of, of report in relation to the payments due by a tenant under the lease and a simultaneous payment schedule to show the dates due and the dates that those payments were actually made. Um, because not only are those you know, rent, service charge, insurance premium, not only are those payments, do they fall within this category, but also interest payments um, you know, can be encompassed here. And there was one recent case in the UK where a tenant had paid all the rent and outgoings payable under the lease, but had failed to look at the interest payable under any late payments and the tenant had failed to pay an amount of £130, and in that case the court held that the tenant had failed to satisfy this precondition and accordingly had failed to exercise the break option. Um, and that was notwithstanding the fact that the court recognised the insignificance of the sum um, and also the fact that uh, it had not actually been formally demanded by the landlord. So apportionment is another one that has been considered by the courts on, on numerous occasions. Um, generally, leases will provide that certain payments must be made in advance. For example, uh, quarterly rent payment must be made in advance. Insurance must be paid in advance on an annual basis on demand. So the, the principles established by the courts are clear in relation to apportionment. And what they say is that notwithstanding the fact that a full quarter or annual advance payment uh, that part of that payment will be in respect of liabilities beyond the break date, that ultimately the full advance payment should still be made. So, for example, if we have a break date on the 30th of April and quarterly rent is due on the 1st of April, the full quarter's rent should be paid. Where an insurance premium, an annual insurance premium, is demanded on the 1st of February, the full annual insurance premium should be made. And that leads us on then to whether or not a tenant is entitled to a refund of any overpayment made. The general consensus of the courts is that no, a tenant is not entitled to a refund, except where it is explicitly stated to be so in the actual lease. Now that has been turned on its head in some respects uh, in relation to a recent case involving Marks and Spencers, but that case is now the subject of, a, of an appeal, so it, it should be looked at with caution. Cleared funds is another one, one with which a lot of people maybe overlook. Um, if certain funds are to be with the landlord on the break date, it's extremely important that those are cleared funds. Or if the break option provisions specify a particular method of payment, for example, for example, payment of a bank draft, 
um, or electronic transfer of funds, that particular mode of payment uh, should be adhered to. And then the last of our most common preconditions is the compliance with covenants and conditions of the tenant under the lease up to the break date. And this is a particularly onerous obligation on a tenant. For example, does the most minor, insignificant, historic breach affect the tenant's ability to validly exercise the break option? Well, it's a long-established principle by the UK courts that only subsisting breaches, so those which haven't been remedied on the break date, uh, will fall foul of this precondition. Materiality has also been considered by the courts, and the court has set out a number of, of, of items that will be, di will be discussed to, in order to assess the materiality. First, the extent of the breach, uh, also the, any adverse effects that that breach has on the landlord, the landlord's genuine interest in compliance, um, and also the efforts that the tenant has made to comply. One particular case involved a situation where a tenant had failed to carry out repairs in the amount of £18,000 and was also in rent arrears of £1,800. And the court held that the £18,000 repair works were immaterial because of the landlord's genuine lack of concern in relation to the condition of the property, but that the £1,800 rent arrears were material as a result of the fact that they related to the last six days of, re of rent under the lease. And as a result, it, there was no clear intention demonstrated by the tenant to the landlord that the tenant did in fact wish to terminate the lease. Repair, probably the most important tenant obligation under a lease. Uh, again, tenants need to be aware that there's no obligation or there's generally no obligation on a landlord to serve a schedule of dilapidations and to explicitly confirm to the, land, to the tenant what needs to be done. So it's for the tenant to ascertain what do they need to do in order to comply with the break option. And one particular case there involved a situation where a landlord and tenant actually agreed the extent of the works that needed to be carried out. The tenant got his contractors to go into the property, carried out the repairs, but the tenant remained in the property for a number of days post the break date, carrying out those repairs. The case ended up in court. The landlord claimed non-compliance, and the court agreed because the tenant had not carried out the compliance, the, the, the uh, I beg your pardon, the works, uh, in compliance with the, with the break option provisions prior to the break date. Decoration is another one that's often overlooked um, and is possibly just as important as the repair <coughs> obligations. One particular tenant uh, who entered into a lease which required, which contained decoration provisions which required that the tenant decorate the property at the end of the term with three coats of paint. And the tenant, in fact, only decorated the property with two coats of paint. And for the court, that was actually sufficient to state that the, that the tenant had not complied with its obligations under the lease um, and had invalidly exercised the break option. Alterations, uh, again, generally tenants' fittings need to be removed unless otherwise stated in the lease document or any other formal license for works documentation. And then the tenant will need to yield up vacant possession on completion. Uh, vacant possession is generally not defined, but what it means is that the property must be free from any encumbrances, any mortgages, charges, subleases, licenses, any agents of the tenant and the tenant themselves must vacate the property prior to the break date, meters should have been read, the property should be cleared of rubbish, keys handed over, security removed, and un under no circumstances should anybody re-enter the property post the break date. 
So before I wrap up, uh, I just want to discuss one more point which will be of particular concern to landlords, and that is the concept of a stopo. Whereas I've discussed the general approach of the UK courts requiring the strictest of compliance by tenants with the preconditions, the courts can essentially counteract this approach by virtue of the equitable doctrine of estoppel. And in context, what this means is that although the break option provisions specify that, or usually specify, that the tenant has the, has the obligations, there's generally no obligations on a landlord in relation to the break option provisions. But notwithstanding that, the landlord's action or inaction in relation to the tenant's exercise of the break option can affect its legal position and can prejudice its legal position. For example, it's not acceptable for a landlord to sit idly by and watch a tenant fail to comply uh, where a tenant has tried to engage with the landlord in relation to compliance or the landlord's expectations of compliance. Uh, and there's an abundance of case law in relation to estoppel where landlords have been stopped from denying non-compliance by their tenants, where they essentially have been deemed to have encouraged or acquiesced in the tenant's non-compliance. So just to wrap up then, um, if you're to take anything away from today, I suppose it's to arm, landlord, both landlords and tenants need to arm themselves with knowledge of the law um, and need to take early legal advice in relation to imminent break options to understand the full nature and extent of the, the respective parties' rights and obligations under the lease and to know how to strategically engage with one another. Um, so it's in the hope that in following these steps that landlords and tenants can avoid costly and time-consuming litigation and the uncertainty that that might bring in disputes with their landlords um, and can possibly end their relationship more in tandem with what Gwyneth Paltrow recently phrased as conscious uncoupling. <laughs> thank you very much. So, thank you. I'm just going to welcome my colleague Emer Collins to the stage, who's going to discuss peaceable re-entry. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Um, thanks, Nicola, um, and thank you all for coming this morning and not hitting the snooze button, which I think must have been a temptation. Um, I'm going to start just by going back to Nicola's conscious uncoupling. Clearly, peaceably re-entering a premises by a landlord is the most definite action of trying to uncouple themselves um, from the relationship of landlord and tenant. The difficulty that a landlord faces, which I don't think that Chris and Gwyneth will face, is that the court can join you back together or recouple you um, even after you have completed a successful re-entry to a premises where a tenant has been in breach. So today I just would like to discuss the who, what, when, why you can peaceably re-enter a premises. Just to note that this only deals with commercial premises and there's no such right when you are dealing with a residential premises. The first, uh, as, as Kevin mentioned in the introduction, is that peaceable re-entry for a landlord is a very effective, speedy and economical way for a landlord to terminate the lease where a tenant is in breach of the covenants or terms of the lease. 
The big thing, again referred to by Kevin, is that there is no necessity for the landlord to obtain any sort of court order prior to re-entering the premises. But it can also be a very stressful time for the landlord. It can also be a very intensive time for the landlord. But the main reason that landlords resort to peaceably re-entering a premises is because it empowers them to take immediate action against a tenant who is in breach. It, it should also be of extreme concern to any tenant who is in breach of any of the terms of the conditions of their lease because it should be to the forefront of their mind because a landlord can do it really without much notice and without much formalities being conducted prior to the re-entry. However, we would advise that landlords do take legal advice before considering re-entering a premises and this is because there are pitfalls and risks in relation to re-entering a premises. However, we are seeing that landlords are resorting to this rather than court orders because currently, if you are to issue proceedings for a court order for possession against a tenant who is in breach, it is taking up to six months. It is costing in excess of 20,000 in relation to legal fees. There's absolutely no guarantee that you're going to get the court order. If the tenant remedies the breach within the period of time before the matter comes before the court, the court is very unlikely to give you relief from forfeiture. So, for example, a very practical example is a tenant is in arrears of rent. You issue your proceedings. The proceedings take six months, and on the day immediately prior to the court hearing or on the day the tenant comes into court with a cheque or bank draft for the arrears. The chances of getting, peace, getting a court order for possession is extremely unlikely in that scenario. And it's very frustrating to the landlord because they've had to wait six months and they've had to go through a court process in relation to it. So it can be a very unsatisfactory outcome for a uh, landlord. The other point is when you come out of court, you only have a piece of paper. You have a court order and you have to enforce that court order. So you can serve it on the tenant, but if the tenant doesn't comply, you may again have to resort to re-entering the premises or getting the bailiff to attend the premises to have the landlord or the tenant removed. So they can be um, you know, very unsatisfactory for a landlord. So what we're finding today is that there is a shift in the landlord's attitude, and landlords are now very willing um, to use peaceable re-entry in all kinds of scenarios that wouldn't have traditionally been looked at by landlords. It used to be the domain of the landlord in the shopping centre because you had very easy access to the unit within the shopping centre, usually having a key, usually knowing the movements of the tenant. Um, but this is no longer the case, and later in the talk I just give some examples of the kind of instructions that we are receiving today from clients or advices that we're receiving from clients today, um, which include all sorts of premises. But before I go on and look at that, I just would like to give you an outline of the framework that, that re-entries work within. The first thing that's often quite ignored or not known about is that there is a common law right for landlords to re-enter a premises for a breach once it is a condition in the lease. 
So if you see language in your lease that says it's a con- you know, on condition that the rent is paid, on condition that you don't sublet without getting the uh, landlord's consent, then you have an automatic right under the common law to re-enter the premises, even if the premises says absolutely nothing about re-entry. So if it's silent, once you have conditions. And historically, it was always a condition of the older leases to pay the rent. However, when we move into more kind of modern leases, certainly from the 1970s onwards, it's extremely common for a commercial lease to have express provisions for re-entry. The most common is in relation to non-payment of rent. But you'll also see, usually, for failure to obtain the landlord's consent, uh, for failure to carry out repairs, on the appointment of a receiver, on the appointment of a liquidator, if the tenant gets into financial difficulty. They're extremely common provisions to have in modern-day leases. You will also find that there's generally a catch-all phrase in leases, Lawyers love catch-alls to protect themselves. So we'll say any breach by the tenant will allow a a landlord to re-enter. The main statutory provision that you have to be aware of or always consider in every case other than non-payment of rent is the Conveyancing Act and in particular Section 14 because this sets down the number one precondition for all breaches other than non-payment of rent you must serve a Section 14 notice. Failure to serve the Section 14 notice renders any subsequent re-entry invalid and will automatically give the tenant a valid claim for damages, if not uh, relief from forfeiture. So the Section 14 notice, any breach other than non-payment of rent, always must be considered. I've just included the Landlord and Ground Rents uh, Acts in because it just takes out, you can't peaceably re-enter a premises if uh, the Ground Rent Acts apply. So if the landlord, if the tenant is entitled to buy the reversionary interest, you can't re-enter a premises. But they're far and few between. And then the main case is the Sweeney and Powers Court Shopping Centre case. And this is very important from an Irish point of view because there was judicial endorsement of the fact that a landlord can, piece, can re-enter a premises. That was the first thing. The second thing, which was equally important, is that it set down that the re-entry must be done peaceably. Now, unfortunately, there isn't a judicial discussion in the Powers Court case in relation to what is peaceable. So we have to kind of feel our way around what is peaceable and what isn't. And the reason was there was no necessity to to get into what was peaceable in this case because it was the traditional type of re-entry. It was a shopping centre scenario. It was where the landlord had the key and used the key to gain access on a Sunday morning with no resistance from the tenant, which, as I said, up until quite recently would have been the traditional and really kind of sometimes the only time that a landlord would consider re-entry. So now after the framework, what is re-entry? Re-entry is where a landlord physically takes back possession of the premises by re-entering onto the premises. And it must be for the purposes of terminating the lease. But that's a far more subjective criteria. The main criteria is that there has to be an action whereby the landlord has re-entered the premises. Very commonly, a mistake is made by landlords where they think the service of a notice is sufficient. So where you write a letter to the the tenant saying, 
you're in breach, I want back the premises because you're in breach on such and such a date. Totally and utterly um, not sufficient from the landlord's point of view or for the, for the tenant. And then you must actually get into the premises, okay? So no other act is sufficient. And I'm just going to give an outline of a case that isn't actually reported in the, under landlord and tenant law. It's in the tort section. But it's an extremely good example of where a landlord get it, gets it wrong and gets it wrong quite badly. And it is also a good example of the fallout for a landlord if a landlord gets it wrong. So it's McKnight and Extravision case. And McKnight was the landlord and Extravision were the tenant. And Extravision started to dispute the service charges that were being uh, charged. And they decided when they were getting nowhere with McKnight as the landlord that they would withhold the service charges. McKnight didn't see it this way and decided that the best way was to put a lock and chain on the outside of Extravision's premises. Extravision staff arrive. They see that there's a lock and chain, so they ring the headquarters. The sales manager of Extravision and Extravision's security guard arrive to the premises. The landlord's uh, security guard knew the reason why the chain and bolt had been put on the door and informed the sales manager and extravision security guards that it was for the non-payment of service charges. Allegedly, the landlord was on the street handing out flyers and everything, telling everyone that extravision hadn't paid the service charges and that's why they had locked them out. So extravision did what kind of every tenant do. They made a call to their solicitor and they took advice. And the advice they were given by their solicitor was, they haven't re-entered the premises, they're trespassing, you can forcibly gain entry to your own premises. So at that point, the sales manager of Extravision and the security guard, who it turned out was an actual boxer, left, went and got a bolt clippers and came back to the premises, at which time the guards had arrived. The guards were told, no, 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 no need for you here, civil matter, and the guards left. However, the landlord, sorry, so at that point, the court held that the landlord was trespassing. And the court held that the tenant could use reasonable force to gain access to their own premises. So the landlord upped the ante and basically started to hold on to the two door handles and effectively put himself in the way of extravision getting in to cut through the lock. The court held that that action by the landlord was also trespass because it was all being done outside of the premises. What ensued was, excuse me, what ensued was a boxing match whereby the security guard of extravision gave a few punches to the, to the landlord and the sales manager of Extravision threw in a punch or two just not to be left out of the fray. Um, and although this isn't a, um, a landlord and tenant case per se, just to finish it off, the court held that uh, they were equally to blame, so they made an award of damages against the landlord, but it was cut in half um, to, to take into the actions of all the parties. So that's just an example of how it can go horribly wrong if you get the first hurdle um, of actually re-entering the premises wrong. And in that case, if the landlord had just gotten into the premises, 
Then he could have done all the actions he liked. But because he didn't get in, um, he hadn't re-entered the premises and terminated the lease, and therefore the leaseholder was still the, uh, was, was still the lessee extra vision. Okay, so when can a landlord re-enter a premises? When it's expressly provided for in the lease, simple enough, and when the common law has a right to re-enter, so where there's a breach of condition uh, in the lease. At the moment, there's a 90-10 split. 90% of the time is in relation to arrears of rent, and there's about 10% of the time whereby um, it's for other breaches, such as uh, failure to obtain landlord's consent to a subletting, failure to carry out repairs under the lease. Um, and 99% of the time in, common, in, in modern day leases, we're seeing that there is an express re-entry provision. So the legal effect, it terminates the tenancy between the landlord and the tenant. It terminates any sub-tenancies automatically. It terminates the guarantor's provisions under the lease, except some other uh, guarantee provisions might kick in. So don't forget about the guarantor. It also ceases a mortgagee's interest uh, because the lease no longer exists. So it, it, it's a wipeout. It's a total wipeout across the board um, if it's done successfully and if, if it isn't challenged successfully by the tenant. So when is it an effective tool for a landlord? Well, there, it, there's certain things you should consider. The first is, is the tenant actually in breach? Sounds fundamental, but you have to establish there's a breach. The second is, do you have a right to do it? So if you have a right under the lease, that's fine. If not, you have to look to the common law. Are you satisfied? Is the landlord satisfied to release the tenant and any guarantors from the obligation to pay rent going forward? So do you actually want vacant possession back of the premises? There may be other things to consider, such as increased insurance if the premises is vacant. Is the premises going to be secure if there isn't a tenant in there? Is it better to come to a deal with the tenant rather than getting back vacant possession? Another thing that you should always look at is, is the business conducive to a re-entry? As I said, traditionally it was confined to the area of units within shopping centres. This has been dramatically changed in the last few years. But you do have to consider each premises. So for an example, a hotel may have guests in situ 24-7. So how are you going to peaceably re-enter the premises? How are you going to do it when people aren't there? The same in, in respect of student accommodation, hostels, um, licensed premises, again, with a pub or with a hotel. Are you going to be able to transfer the liquor license to you? How are you going to do that? Um, in relation to as simple as a flower shop, perishable goods, how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to deal with the orders from people that are coming in if there's a wedding on, on Saturday? These are the practical things that hit you immediately after you re-enter a premises. However, having said that, as noted, there is a willingness by a landlord, landlords now to consider it in the most complex of situations. And I myself have recently, well, not, not uh, a few years ago, advised and partook in one of the first re-entries of a hotel in Dublin, which was a fully functional hotel, had 
guests in situ 24-7. We had restaurants, so we had perishable goods. We had, uh, there was a bar, so we had to deal with the, the transferring of the license over to the landlord immediately upon the re-entry. Um, we had to deal with the guests that were there, what were we going to do with them. We had to discuss how were we going to actually get people out of the premises so that we could do it peaceably. Um, we had to discuss how we were going to deal with the bookings that were there uh, into the future. Um, we knew that the unions and things would come out in force, so we had to deal with all of that. So. In this instance, because of the planning and the um, advices and working together with the, with the client, we had prepared for all of this. So the re-entry was ultimately successful, went unchallenged by the tenant, and within a matter of days, a liquidator was appointed over the tenant. So it, would, it was probably inevitable anyway, but we just brought it to a head uh, very quickly. So we get into the procedure in relation to it. And this is the real meat and bones in relation to re-entries. So the first thing is, for every breach other than non-payment of rent, you must serve a Section 14 notice. Okay? And the, 14, the, four, the Section 14 notice is going to be what the tenant solicitor will first look at when a tenant comes in and says, my, my, uh, my premises has been re-entered. So it is the way for the landlord or for the tenant to try really and challenge the re-entry. Unfortunately, there's no set format in relation to a Section 14 notice. But if you look at all the case law and you look at the wording of Section 14, it is clear that the notice must be in writing. It must be served on the tenant. And that may see, seem easy, but there is a case where there was joint tenants it was only served on one of the tenants, and the court held that the Section 14 notice was invalid. It must specify the breach. It must specify the remedy. It must call on the tenant to specify the remedy, and it must give a reasonable time frame. Again, that's very much open to interpretation. We have given as little as three days' notice, and we have given as much as a month's notice. We tend not to give anything more than that. So... In order to minimise risk, as I said, I, we would advise that you get legal advice, that you consider the barriers in relation to the specific issues which will arise in relation to this premises. We say to keep the element of surprise. So even if you serve a Section 14 notice, don't say we will re-enter the premises at 5 o'clock on the 1st of April. Don't even say we'll re-enter the premises on the 1st of April. You want to keep the element of surprise and you need to keep the element of surprise because you need to keep it peaceable because of the Sweeney and Powers Court case. And if the tenant knows you're coming, they will be ready for you coming. So they may have a security guard, they may have employees there, they may put up some sort of physical resistance. And if they do, it will no longer be peaceable. So surprise is, is a very important element in relation to it. Once, you, once the premises is re-entered, we generally send a letter to the tenant post-re-entry saying that the premises has been re-entered, so there's no confusion in relation to it. We say to the landlord, give the tenant back their goods. Okay? A lot of landlords say, can I not set them off against the arrears that are owing? We say, don't do that. It just complicates issues and gives the court a very easy ground upon which to give relief from forfeiture. Keep it simple post-re-entry. Just have a mantra whereby you say to anyone who calls or anything else, the premise, please contact the landlord. So don't go in, sorry, please contact the tenant. Don't go into any of the reasons why. Okay, so the actions a tenant can seek to bring against a landlord. 
Every tenant, no matter what the breach, where the premises has been re-entered, can seek relief from forfeiture. So even if you've done everything correctly, the court can still give it. However, the court will really only give damages if some aspect of it has been done incorrectly. So if you've used more than reasonable force in relation to getting into the premises, or if the re-entry is not procedurally correct, or if the goods have perished, they will normally um, give some kind of damages to it. So just to wrap up, it is not a universal panacea. It is only relevant for commercial leases you still may have to sue the tenant or the guarantors in relation to the damages for the breach which gave rise to the re-entry or the arrears of rent. The tenant can always seek relief from forfeiture and re-entry just from a title point of view can be a little bit um, difficult because you've, no, you've nothing on title that shows how the lease was actually terminated but that can be easily gotten over by the uh, landlord doing a declaration and putting it with the title. Now, I am running over time, so I'm just going to very quickly give you just a few things that we're seeing on the ground. Courts are getting more inclined to give relief from forfeiture, even when a tenant hasn't remedied the breach by the time it comes to court, if they bring it to court. For example, we're seeing where courts are allowing payment plans for the first time for, for tenants. Okay, traditionally you would have had to have had the breach remedied. Secondly, we're seeing that the guards are tending to hang around a bit more, whereas usually they used to walk away. But we just say to the landlord, hold tight as long as you're doing everything correctly. Um, the next thing that we're seeing is that tenants are tending to break back into the premises. Um, so we're advising that as a practical solution, you may want to have security in the premises for about 72 hours post-re-entry. Um, and now I'm going to introduce Eamon, who is a barrister, who is going to speak about tenants suing landlords. Thank you. Sorry for going over. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Eamon Murray, and I'm a, a barrister for the last 24 years. I have uh, a general practice, but some experience in this area. And uh, I was, when I was invited or notified of this topic, commercial leases and hot topics, I questioned myself, what did I miss over the last 23 or four years? Because uh, there were very few hot topics, certainly in the practice I had in cases I dealt with. But I got the sense of what I was being asked to address when Emer and Nicola asked me to address the issue of quiet and peaceable enjoyment of the premises on behalf of the tenant, and also this doctrine of non-derogation from grant, which I'll, I'll look at in a moment. But um, just from a, a few practical observations at the beginning of uh, what I have to say this morning, uh, as uh, lawyers, solicitors, barristers, when it commercial tenant comes in seeking your advice, there are certain assumptions being made. One is that the person that the tenant is speaking to knows the law. That's a pretty basic assumption, but hopefully it's one that's well-founded. And secondly, on the other side of the equation, that the tenant who is actually speaking has a pretty clear account of the facts now, it's important 
that the person giving the advice knows what the law is. That's why you're a lawyer, whether it's a barrister or a solicitor. And secondly, in addition to that, one of the arts of uh, a solicitor dealing with the client firsthand is to elicit the facts clearly, not to make any assumptions. Because regardless of what image you may have in front of the client sitting in your office and wishing to impress the client, you certainly want to impress the client when you're in, in front of the judge dealing with the issues that have arisen. If you haven't properly elicited the facts from the client at the beginning, it may be a very humbling experience in front of the court when the court, having been apprised of the facts of the case that led to the dispute coming into court, turns around and says to you, well, Mr. Murray, this is not a landlord and tenant relationship at all. It's a license, licensor relationship, or licensor licensee relationship, in which case you have no basis for the claim that you're asserting before the court at all. Now, happily, it doesn't happen too often, but I'm sure there are occasions when you do find yourself in that very sensitive situation where the court is telling you that there is a misconception at the heart of the case that's before the court. So we don't want to find ourselves that, in that position as professionals. So it's very important at the beginning, the first engagement, that you elicit the facts. And it's also very important that when you have done that, that your knowledge of the law is applied to those facts. And in this case, before you get, ever get into the issue of whether or not there has been a breach of the tenant's uh, or covenants and rights under the lease, you have to ascertain whether in fact there is a lease at all or a tenancy. And once you have ascertained that, uh, you're on surer ground moving forward. Now, there is a distinction, as you'll see from the uh, brief paper that I've prepared. What I've done in the paper is incorporated all of the relevant cases so that you can consult those and look at the particular factual matrix, matrix in each case to assist you in what a better understanding of the law in this area. But essentially, it's very important that you be clear about what a tenancy <coughs> is and the essential indicia of a tenancy or lease. And one of the critical considerations that should be jumping out at you from the beginning is the fact that the person who is sitting in front of you has in fact exclusive possession of the premises which they occupy. If they haven't got exclusive possession, then that's a pretty clear indicator that even though they're alleging that they're a tenant, your knowledge of the law should assist you in coming to the conclusion and advising the person sitting in front of you that they're not a tenant there's some other creature. But assuming that you can establish that there's exclusive possession and there's a rent being paid, we can move forward with some certainty that we have a landlord and tenant relationship that we're dealing with. And, and that's important because every, everything that flows from establishing those facts will assist you in hopefully advising your client correctly and securing and protecting that client's interests. Now, the topic this morning deals with commercial tenants. 
nothing got to, not talking here about residential tenants, commercial tenants. And commercial tenants, as you know, can be very substantial commercial undertakings. So you're talking about someone acquiring a premises under a lease or tenancy for the purpose of conducting a business which hopefully will be very profitable. So it's important that if they, when they enter into that relationship, they're guaranteed certain rights which they can protect during the currency of the tenancy. And as, a, as the paper records, one of the significant aspects of landlord and tenant since DC's Act is that it's essentially based on contract. But that's not surprising because everything we do in the modern day world and for some time back is everything is contract. Even law itself, the law of property is contract. It's preceded by a contract. The contract merges into the conveyance or deed and then the rights. But I suppose, again, keeping a very taking a very practical approach and applying as much common sense as we have, because common sense is the best protector for you and the client at the end of the day. In this situation, once you have a contract and you establish that it's leased or tenancy, then you know from your knowledge of the law that you can advise the client that, yes, you're, you have your contractual rights, but the nature of the landlord and tenant relationship involves creating an estate or interest in the subject premises that is being occupied. So that's like you becoming a limited owner of a property which is held at a superior level of ownership by the landlord. And then we have the whole concept of what Eamon and Nicholas spoke about, subleases, that the tenant themselves may become a landlord to another tenant. But the whole idea is that there's an estate or interest created in the property. And that's not uh, an absolute right. It's one that's defined by the terms of the lease or tenancy. And you'll see from the paper uh, that all of this is heavy, heavily regulated. Statute has stepped in to regulate certain matters. And the reason why that, if we think about it for a moment, the reason why that is, is that it reflects the acceptance of the fact that a tenant has an interest or an estate in property. It's not just a contractual right. Of course, it's based on contract and it derives from contract, but it's in the nature of a proprietary interest. It's, of course, it's, it may be taken away from the tenant in appropriate cases, which Emer and Nicola have discussed in terms of break clauses and peaceable reentry. But generally speaking, it's one that the landlord must respect during the currency of the tenancy. And that's the context in which the law has developed this idea of peaceable and quiet enjoyment of the property. And that in itself, if, if we want to understand a little bit more, that's linked with the idea of exclusive possession. When you think about it for a moment, it's quite remarkable that on the basis of a contract, you can turn, the tenant can turn around and say to the landlord, you're not coming in here. And the landlord said, but I'm the owner of the premises. I know, but you've given away your right to possession and occupation on the terms set out in the lease or tenancy. So you, now, now there's an allocation of property rights and ownership interests between the superior owner, which we call the landlord in most cases, and the, we'll call the inferior owner, the tenant. So that play, interplay exists during the currency of the tenancy. And um, that's also reflected in the detail of the regulation 
through statute. It's fine, one would think, creating a tenancy so that you can claim it back sometime. But the law has stepped in and says, to, in terms of commercial tenants, if you hold that property for a period of time, statute will give you an entitlement to enlarge that interest beyond the initial fixed period of your lease or tenancy, which is quite a remarkable thing because that has informed, as most practitioners will see, that has informed the type of advice that is being given to a landlord vis-a-vis -a, -vis a tenant. You better be careful here because if you allow this to run on, you may be giving away more of the, your rights in relation to the property than you intended or that you appreciate. So it's very important that a lawyer advising a client appreciates the significance of what's provided for in the Landlord and Tenant Amendment Act 1980, where you can acquire a business equity after a long occupation of the premises for a period of time. But I think we're all familiar with that. So, but it's just, again, to emphasize that aspect that the tenant, although the relationship is based on contract, there's also uh, a regulatory framework there that allows the tenant to acquire an interest over a longer period than the initial lease. So if you're looking at the landlord and tenant relationship from a regulatory point of view, it's not unlike the position that exists with regard to employer-employee. Again, the relationship is based on contract, but there's a regulatory framework there where certain rights are in, implied into the relationship and obligations so that it, the interest of what's regarded as the uh, weaker party is protected. And some landlords would feel, well, at this day and age, and given the extent of the regulation, the tenant really has the upper hand here because they have so many rights. But nonetheless, that's a matter of opinion. It's just to appreciate from this perspective um, when you're advising a commercial tenant that there's a legal code out there that the, does, to some extent, protect the rights of the tenant in a more substantial way than perhaps a landlord uh, appreciates. And, of course, the new bill that's proceeding through the Dáil at the moment with regard to changes, it, it's also proposing to put those rights on a more firm footing going forward the idea of an overriding obligation on the part of the landlord to guarantee to the t tenant that at the time or prior to giving the lease that he is sufficient or it has sufficient title to transfer to the tenant to support its title in the premises and also the overriding obligation to, pe to peaceable and quiet enjoyment. Now, um, Really, I've been asked to address this morning what happens when things go wrong. And, of course, uh, the tenant will come, the commercial tenant will come looking for advice, and that will normally in, arise in situations where there's some interference with the tenant's enjoyment of the property. And uh, to a large measure, in, in large measure, rather, there is a, a similarity between this doctrine of non-derogation from grant and peaceable and quiet enjoyment because both of them involve a direct interference with the enjoyment of the property. So when a tenant acquires a tenancy, that tenant is entitled to expect full enjoyment of the premises for the duration of the, the lease or tenancy, without any interference from the landlord any, or anyone claiming under him or on his behalf. 
And that's not surprising because it's a commercial transaction. I am taking the premises for the purpose of conducting my business and like if it was your home, you don't want anyone intruding into it unless they're lawfully entitled to do so. And of course the landlord has certain rights reserved under most leases and tenancies with regard to inspection and so forth. So it's, uh, the land, there is a balancing uh, of rights within the, the agreement itself. But what happens then when the landlord uh, doesn't respect those obligations resting on a tenant, uh, resting on him vis-a-vis -vis the tenant? Well, the tenant has, of course, uh, certain uh, remedies available. If the intrusion is substantial enough, then the, the first port of call will normally be the solicitor for advice. That advice, depending on the detail or facts in the particular case, may lead to the tenant being advised to seek injunctive relief. That's asking the court to grant an order restraining the landlord from interfering in a substantial way with the uh, business and the premises uh, out of which the business has been conducted. Uh, and again, without going into the detail of that, most of us would appreciate what, what that would involve. It's effectively to reinstate the status quo that it existed or the state of affairs that existed prior to the uh, interfering event or intermeddling event taking place. And if, there are, if, the, if the dispute continues beyond that point, if the order is granted, the injunction is granted, then the parties will go to a full hearing and the rights, respective rights of the respective positions will be ascertained in, in due course by, by the court itself. Um, there are some of the cases referred to there give an example of that uh, peaceable quiet enjoyment means that you're entitled to full benefit and quiet enjoyment of the property uh, during the, the currency of the, the lease or tenancy. If that's interfered with in the example that Emer gave about putting chains across your door, uh, that's a pretty clear example. Switching off the lights, switching off the heat, causing flooding, you know, the, the interference may come from uh, a proactive act on the part of the, the landlord or a passive act, not doing what the landlord's supposed to do, which results in interference. And you will see from the paper and recent Irish cases that there has been uh, clarity about what constitutes uh, interference. The interference has to be substantial. There's one case where the interference involved uh, low-grade interference over a period of time. And the court held that that didn't amount to substantial interference in the manner in which it played out in that particular case. But one, we can get a sense of what substantial interference means, that it effectively takes away the very essence of what was granted at the beginning. And that's what they, the law of, on the non-derogation from grant is designed to uh, address. If, if the landlord gives you something with this hand, the landlord is not entitled to take it away with this hand, that element of fairness and honoring the bargain or the substance of the bargain. So that's essentially uh, the, um, the point there. Peaceable and quiet enjoyment, as I say, we all appreciate what it means uh, and when it's not being respected. Uh, how it plays out in any particular case, again, the paper I refer to, I give a couple of examples of that in terms of um, 
uh, previous cases. Now, unlike my predecessors there, I don't have a, a slide to assist me, but um, I'm just looking through to make sure I touch on the, on the various headings that I've referred to. Uh, the Landlord and Tenant Bill that's proceeding through the uh, dole at the moment, uh, again, that's to be seen in the context of the Landlord and Tenant Law generally. The, the reform, the ongoing reform that was recently introduced with the 2009 Act, which one is literally uh, one of the most reforming pieces of legislation in 100 years, effectively, and the Landlord and Tenant Law Reform Bill is to carry that forward. The idea of a tenement, which is the essence of what must be established before a business equity is acquired under the 1980 Act, that's going now. Under the new bill, that's going to be a tenancy. Any tenancy, well, at least in, in the terms of the bill and its provisions at the moment, that's what's being performed. So it's simplifying a little more the whole area, but it's also fortifying the respective rights or the rights of the tenant and indeed the landlord with regard to recovery of uh, possession of the premises. There was, by way of an example of a slight distinction between uh, ordinary contract law and landlord and tenant. Landlord and tenant is based on contract, and we've seen that since DC's Act uh, and under the 1980 Act as well, um, and indeed the 2009 Act. But this, this clear movement now to effectively treat the landlord and tenant relationship as a contractual relationship, albeit involving a property interest or an estate in the premises, but generally providing the whole panoply of remedies and the same approach that applies to the general law of contract. And there's a number of Irish cases there um, which uh, confirm that fact. And the new Act, the 2011 Act, also reflects that movement in the law as well. So the old right of election that a landlord had, for example, of I'm entitled to bind you to your lease for the remainder of the period, that's now going to be challenged a little bit in the sense that Every party that's party to a contract where the, that contract is breached has an obligation to mitigate their loss. The landlord can't sit back now and say, well, I'm happy to do nothing here and I'll just collect my cheque or seek judgment against the tenant who hasn't been paying. The, the obligation now will be on the landlord to mitigate the loss. So I hope that has... I'm not sure where I am on time, Kevin, at the moment. I'm close to, close to the limit. So I hope that's of, of some assistance and, uh, as I say, as a parting observation, it's very important to elicit the facts uh, and be clear about the facts because then you're being of greater service to the, the client in doing that. The advice that you may have to give the client after eliciting the facts may not be the advice that they want to hear, but it may be good advice at the end of the day. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we'll be emailing Eamon's paper along with the slides to you in the coming days. We've learned a couple of lessons, I think, this morning. First is the importance of early engagement. This is all about getting your facts, knowing what the legal situation is, and then forming your strategy to achieve your commercial objectives. 
We had hoped to have some time for questions, but I know we're approaching 9.15, which is the cut-off time. So I have one question to pose to Emer in relation to peaceable re-entry. After I do that, I'll just do a quick wrap-up. So Emer, in the context of peaceable re-entry, how do you actually do that in the context of periodic tenancies? Just join me up here, yes. We have two mics, so we can have two people. Um, So um, generally in relation to oral tenancies or periodic tenancies, you you hit a problem when you come to peaceable re-entry. In relation to periodic tenancies, the court has stated that the better option is to serve a notice to quit. So if it's a weekly tenancy, periodic tenancy, you'll have to give a week's notice. If it's monthly, a month. Uh, a yearly, you'll have to give half a year's notice, and that's the more appropriate remedy. In relation to oral tenancies, um, it would not appear that there is any statutory or common law basis for re-entering where you only have an oral tenancy. However, saying that, um, and having discussed it with quite a few people over the last number of weeks, the common view would appear to be that the court would take quite a practical um, view of it and that you should apply the requirement to serve a section 14 notice and the requirement to do it peaceably. So there's no judicial or statutory basis giving you a right to re-enter under a periodic lease or an oral tenancy. However, saying that, if a landlord is deciding that that's what they're going to do, we would advise the procedures to best protect the landlord in those situations. Great. Thank you, Emer. For those of you who have questions, we'll be staying around afterwards, and anybody with the white lanyard is a Mason Hayes person, so please do speak. Also, please feel free to give us a call about anything that might occur to you after the event. It doesn't cost you to have a telephone chat with us. This is the first in a series of events. Don't laugh, that wasn't supposed to be a joke. (laughs) This is the first in a series of events, so our next one will be on the 11th of June, and we'll be covering rent reviews, dilapidations, and depending on where the Oireachtas has got in terms of landlord and tenant reform, we might put something in about legislation as well. The Programme for Government has promised us a complete overhaul of landlord and tenant law, but then the 2012 one promised it for 2013, 2013, 2014, and 2014 promises it for next year. But someday it will come. Thank you all for coming here this morning. I hope you found it informative, and we look forward to speaking to you later.